the Theology Podcast. It's great to have you with us. And this again is C.R. Wiley. And uh, I am a pastor and I've been a uh, professor of philosophy. I've uh, been a real estate investor and I've actually written some books. So that's me. And uh, each week with the podcast, we, uh, we don't assume that everybody who's listening has listened to us before. So we, we, we go through this routine of introducing ourselves, and I hope it's not too tedious. We try to mix in a little bit every now and then, you know, that, to, to add a little variety, a little extra sort of zing, pizzazz, whatever. Uh, Tom, what's your pizzazz today? What's <laughs> <it>? <laughs> Counterweight headway. <laughs> I believe that's a local beer, is that right? <laughs> right, right. Yeah, it is, it is. Um, uh, Tom Price, systematic theologian, Christian ethicist, uh, teaching both um, at Gordon-Conwell Theological Seminary, um, teach philosophy too, and other things at other places. All right. And Glenn? <laughs> Glenn Sunshine, professor of history at Central Connecticut State University, among other things this semester, teaching on plague. All right, all right. And uh, also a senior fellow at the Colson Center for Christian Worldview. Yeah, and oh, here's our friend John Sundet. He has arrived. John is uh, part of the studio audience. So good to see you, John. John yeah, is the studio audience. <laughs> well, 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 we actually, we actually have your, your wife. Yeah, and my brother-in-law. <laughs> so. So, and we have a, 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 someone else with us today. We've got a guest, Christian Cuthbert. And uh, Christian, uh, why don't you tell us a little bit about yourself? Okay. I know you, but yeah. no, 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 nobody else really does. I mean, not even Glenn and Tom really know you yet. So no, no, tell us a little bit about yourself. Uh, I'm an Edwards guy. That's who I studied in my doctoral program. Okay, we're uh, talking about Jonathan Edwards. Jonathan Edwards, yeah, correct. Yeah. Um, I currently serve as a senior pastor at Union Church in Vernon Rockville, Connecticut. So I've been here about six months. And um, I teach biblical theology at Crown College. Why they chose me for biblical theology, not entirely sure. Because you're but a history guy. You're history. I'm a history, history theology guy, but not necessarily a biblical theology guy. Right, right. So I think the textbook that we use was written by a professor of mine, and, and my boss at Crown thought that was cool, so they asked me if I could do it. And of course, <laughs> I said yes, and I do enjoy it, but it's not my, that's not my thing. Right, right. Uh, Where is Crown? Crown is in Minnesota. So I teach online for them, obviously. It's a hefty commute. <laughs> that's, right, that's right. That's right. Yeah, yeah. That would take you a couple of days back and forth. But anyway, uh, now you and I, Christian, have talked a little bit about your research, mm -hmm. and here we are in Connecticut. This is Jonathan Edwards' country. Yeah. I mean, you know, you go down to Yale. One of the things that really is, may surprise people is that they really are proud of Edwards down at Yale. You go oh, into absolutely. the bookstore; his picture is everywhere. You know, hanging up there. Now, no one would, who goes to Yale would go to his church, but they still like to lay claim to Jonathan Edwards. You know, oh, you know what I'm getting at. You yes. know? It's yeah. better than Northampton, where they barely acknowledge the fact that his church was there. That's, That's right. right. That's well, right. They yeah. have two different churches in Northampton. There's the Edwards Church that was not Edwards Church, and then they have First Second Church of Northampton that was Edwards Church. And they do have a bas relief of Edwards in there, but they keep it well hidden. That's right. That's right. Yeah. But anyway, so this is the paradox of you know life in New England here in Connecticut, in particular, right down the way from Yale. And uh, I know that in part you're here in this area to do some work on Edwards, and yeah. you've got kind of a, a kind of a, a, fo a focus of study that I think is fascinating. Can you tell us a little bit about? Yeah. Now, you talked to me about it. But. Yes, yes. I, uh, I do Edwards and warfare. All right. Yeah. Uh, that's <laughs> the reaction I get from most Edwards people. They, uh, the, the Edwards community is very nice. They're very supportive. Um, but until I came on the scene, I don't think they really knew what to do with the idea of Edwards and warfare. Um, so the project I'm working on right now is working with the Jonathan Edwards Center out of Yale to transcribe, edit, and publish some of Edwards' unpublished works, uh, some of which are on warfare, either making use of martial themes in his sermons or commenting directly on the um, events of warfare during the 1740s, 1750s. So I have a collection coming out of about 24 sermons. 14 of them have never been seen before. Wow. Um, that will come out someday. So... Any idea, though? I mean, I know you're, you're playing your, your cards close to the vest here. You don't have a lot of control over it. But do you have any guess about when this uh, work of yours will see the light of day? Man, I'm hoping it's before 2022. Yeah, uh, yeah. The manuscript is 
all but finished, but it's got a few more hoops it's got to jump through, and you never know how the pandemic affects these sure, things. Sure, um, So it should be off my computer into my editor's hands, hopefully within two weeks. Nice. So. So a lot of folks, I guess, more or less assume that we all know everything that there is to know about Jonathan Edwards and his opinion opinions about everything. Yeah. <laughs> but you told me that this was kind of a surprise even to some of the people you were working with down at Yale. Yeah. Can you tell us a little bit about that? Yeah, well, I think part of it is because of my own story. Like when I got out of college, I enlisted in the U.S. Army Reserves, and I spent six years as an enlisted soldier, six years as a chaplain during a time of high deployments. And I so you were 12 years in the service. 12 years in, in the service. Um, so I kind of know what it's like to have this shadow of war, this threat of war weighing on my soul, weighing on my psyche day to day, even as a reservist. Uh, so when I read Edwards and Edwards' community during times of war, it always surprised me that none of the biographers, none of the Edwards scholars made much of it. Yeah, So yeah. George Marsden in his a, uh, great biography on Edwards right. talks a lot about warfare. I'll do the red now, the, that other one. Okay. But he doesn't really connect what's going on with war with Edwards' role as a pastor, as a theologian or anything. Right, right. So because of my particular angle on Edwards, I think I was able to see something that, yeah, it did take, still take some people by surprise. So, hmm. so let's, well, let's set this, the, 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 sort of the, the scene, sort of uh, weave the context. Okay. So when people today think about New England, you know, they think about, you know, white clapboard churches on the town, green, yeah. charming houses, you know, sort of colonial-style architecture, that kind of stuff. Rainbow flags. Rainbow, Rainbow flags, flags on, yeah. on Edwards' old churches. You know, things like that. Yep. Yeah, but um, tell us a little bit about what life was like on the ground okay. during Edwards' time here in New England and what just just how real a threat warfare was. Yeah. Uh, to well, the white clever churches, the quaint homes, those actually all developed during Edward's lifetime. Okay. Right? Um, but when Edwards lived here, he was living in Northampton right on the Connecticut River, and it was considered the frontier. Now, not every historian agrees with that assessment because Edwards was so well-connected to ideas in Europe and ideas really around the globe. Right. Um, I think they assumed that Northampton was more cosmopolitan than it was, but really, it was it was really out there, mm -hmm. and you it's had, still kind of out there. Well, yeah, in many ways. <laughs> in many ways, yes. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, it is. It's, uh, it's quite out there. No, now. <laughs> Northampton is 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 interesting. I hate driving in Northampton because yeah. people are sacred cows. They just walk out yeah. like whenever, and I'm supposed to. Oh, stop. they're all Bostonians. Yeah. yeah. Well, I grew up in New York, and if you just walked out in front of a car and got hit, well, well that's that your fault. That shows the difference between. <laughs> Uh, the humanism of Boston and the inhumanism of, New of Manhattan. <laughs> yeah. uh, which, uh, I consider Carter's myself a New Englander, but yeah, yeah, yeah it's, it's your own fault. I, I, think you, I think you got that wrong. I think it's in, in New York, they think of it more as natural selection. That's right. <laughs> Very literally so in some cases. Because seriously, you people would say, if, yeah, you it's, if you walk out there and you get hit and die, it's your own fault. Yeah. <laughs> Um, where, where, I'm, where I'm from, if my accent doesn't betray me, um, you end up running them over, but you still have to thank them when you pass by. <laughs> you, you run them over, then you go back and say, Did, are you hurt? Yeah. Can I help? Yeah, well, bless your heart, Tom. Bless your heart. But in 1730s, 1740s, Northampton was... Uh, a couple hours ride from Springfield, uh, a couple more hours ride from Hartfield, uh, Hartford. But it was kind of trapped in between a number... And by the way, it still can be a couple of hours, depending on well, the day of the week and time of the true. day. That's true. And how much construction there is in yeah. Springfield. That's why I take and the if, back roads and now. If the, and if the dispensaries are open or yeah. not. Uh, there's a few native tribes in the area. And believe it or not, um, these native tribes actually kind of directed the course of frontier history more than maybe we assumed through the scholarship of the 1950s, 1960s. So you got the Mohawks. They were the big, scary people. And you had the Narragansetts down in Rhode Island, which 
Narragansett beer. Yep. We know that now. Yep. <laughs> but in between then, there were a bunch of these little tribes. Right. And both the Narragansetts and the Mohawks thought that these little tribes, the Mohicans, different from the Mohicans and the Podunks and all that, were really part of their tribe. These little river tribes didn't see it that way. So it was really these conflict between these large, you know, Algonquin, Abenaki um, native groups vying for control over these small river tribes that put these frontier settlements in peril. So now, now one of the interesting things, you know, as a New Englander living in this area, the names that you just uh, used are all place names. Yeah, town now. names, yeah. Yeah, now. So, you know, we're all familiar with these names, but we've, we've kind of lost touch with the fact that yeah. these names represented, you know, indigenous peoples at oh, one yeah. time. Yeah. And especially with uh, native names like Podunk, I mean, yeah, that has right. a whole other <laughs> connotation right. to it. That's right. Uh, and they were pretty local to where we're sitting right now. Right, right. Uh, so, we're in Podunk. Yep. <laughs> so to make this even more complicated, these native groups sometimes acted as auxiliaries or proxies to these large continental European forces, Britain and France. Yeah. yeah. So France was able to earn the allegiance of the, the Abenakis up in Maine, Nova Scotia. France did a very poor job at, at acquiring the same loyalty from the Iroquois, from the Mohawk. But what they did instead was, if they were able to separate these natives from their Mohawk or Iroquois tribes, they had these missionary villages, um, La Tourette, St. Francis, all around Montreal and Quebec that became for lack of a better term, the, the minions of the French. Uh, yep, and yep. they would sweep into the Connecticut River Valley hmm. and just cause mayhem. So hmm. in 1704, we have this combined um, French Iroquois and French group that, uh, that pretty much destroys Deerfield, mm -hmm. carries off 100 captives, 80-some made it up to Montreal. So in other words, uh, and they had to abandon the town for years. So, in other words, for, for Jonathan Edwards, this wasn't like an academic exercise. No. What is war? Can I support it? What about the Iraq war halfway around the world? This yeah. is like right next door. This is something that could affect me, affect my daughters, affect my household. Oh, I, I could lose my life, that kind of thing. Yep. They, you have this collective psychological warfare consciousness in, by the time we get to the 1730s, 1740s that were developed in these early, um, early wars, being King Philip's War right. uh, or the Anglo-French um, Wars, of King William's War, Queen Anne's War. So King William's War is 1690 to about 1700. Queen Anne's War was... 1702, 03 to 1713. Um, and then you have these disconnected skirmishes in the 1720s, collectively known as Dummer's War, named after Lieutenant Governor Jeremiah uh, Dummer, um, Father Rawls' War, Greylock's War, where these so, frontiersmen had to deal with war on a day-to-day -day basis, and it created this collective fear of, of oh, sure. native warfare. Uh, and now in the town that I live in, uh, Tallinn, which was a part of uh, Windsor at one time, mm -hmm. which was one of the oldest townships yeah. in the United States. I think it was only the first 50, you know, in, in, you know, in, the, you know, in the entire North American continent. I think uh, when you go to our town hall and you see the list of the war dead, it begins with those wars. Yeah. In fact, with the French and Indian wars, the, the the list of dead from those wars is longer than you know the, the than you know the lists for yeah. World War One, World War Two, you know all that, you know. So this was like a reality on the ground for yeah. for these folks. The burying ground. Uh, we don't have cemeteries in New England. We have burying grounds. Right, right. Yeah. The burying ground outside the meeting house because we don't have churches. We have meeting houses. Right, right. Uh, in Wethersfield, where I go, yeah. has um, has grave markers for people who died in those wars. Right, yeah, yeah. right. Uh, the earliest grave I found there, by the way, goes back to 1648. Okay, yeah, wow, so. wow. And, and of course, at your church, you also have the Edwards desk. That's right. Yeah, which yeah is a reproduction, a reproduction of, of, it, yeah. of the Edwards desk. Yeah. 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 The, my, the first church in Wethersfield is where Jonathan Edwards went to Yale. Right. And so, he, yeah. you know, he was part of that, yeah. that church, that and congregation. And Edwards' cousin and tutor from the Kalichka, Elisha Williams is buried back there. Yeah, uh, right. And he has his own flag because he's a veteran, but he's a veteran of uh, King George's War. Yeah. <laughs> Do they fly the American flag or the Union Jack over here? Uh, the American flag, which is probably not appropriate. That's right. That's what I was probably getting at. Right, right. <laughs> so, okay, so, this, so what we just demonstrated, or I think uh, 
it helped hopefully our, our, our podcast listeners to appreciate is that this is not just simply, you know, Jonathan Edwards thinking about, you know, the beauty of God, you know, or the, uh, you know, or even kind of outlining the, uh, the nature of religious affections in, 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 in the sense that, you know, this is, this is a kind of a safe sort of uh, abstract kind of exercise, academic exercise, but this is like, yeah, you know, he, he's, he's, he's thinking about this from the standpoint of his own vulnerability, but also from the standpoint of the vulnerability and the duties of his congregants. So maybe you can get into that a little bit. Yeah, you know, one of the things that makes Edward so hard to study is because he is better at it's everything than you sentences. are. No, well, <laughs> sometimes, uh, especially if you have to do transcription. His handwriting was not good at all. Um, but he's and you've better been doing at, some of that, haven't you? I did a little bit of that, and I'm glad other people did most of it. Um, <laughs> so thank you to the Jonathan Edwards Center for that. Right. But, uh, yeah, Edwards is better at everything than any one of us are. Like, yeah. He was a philosopher, historian, exegete, theologian, revivalist, a woodcutter, a woodcutter, woodcutter, yeah. entomologist. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, yeah. 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 Um, science. Yeah. Small yeah. science. And he was better at all of those things than I am at any one of those things. Right, right. So it is with great humility that you, you approach Edwards. And I think most people have in their minds that Edwards was a philosopher or Edwards was a reformed theologian or Edwards was this or that. And he was all those things. But I think the thing that Edwards would own more than any of that is uh, his role as pastor. Yeah. 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 So he took his theology, his philosophy, his history, his exegesis, leveraged it to meet the spiritual needs of his congregation. And in this case, warfare developed this need that he had to address. Now, I want to reflect a little bit on this uh, for a couple of reasons. One is, uh, you know, I don't know if... uh, you know, we've got a lot of Reformed people who listen to yeah. our, our podcast, but I don't even think that our people appreciate the stature of Edwards from the standpoint of secular people. You know, I've heard Edwards called by non-Christians the greatest philosopher America and ever produced. Perry, Perry Miller. Perry, uh, the like, Encyclopedia yeah. Britannica, I believe, describes him as the greatest mind America has produced. Yeah, so. well, there you go. I mean, and here's a guy who... who Use that mind in the service of a, of a local church, and again, there's a there's a kind of uh, now I don't want to like pile on when it comes to pastors, yeah. But so. sometimes pastors use the pastoral ministry as an excuse not to think. Yeah, yeah. You know what I'm getting at? We've talked about this. You're <laughs> yeah. a pastor. I'm a pastor. Yeah. We have colleagues that we just sort of roll our eyes, you know, uh, over when we think. Don't you ever like? think? Do, do you yeah. even care about whether or not what you just said makes any sense? <laughs> <laughs> or it, it, let alone be Christian, is Christian or not? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> that kind of stuff. Yeah, well, with Edwards, I, I'll put some words in Edwards' mouth, and they're my words, really. Um, I joke around with some people that there's no such thing as pastoral theology. All theology is pastoral. Yes, yes. And, Amen, brother. Yep. Amen. I mean, the Bible's okay. very clear that all scripture is God-breathed and is useful. Yep. Right, yeah. So there is really no division between academic and pastoral theology. And Edwards was a great um, example of that. And that's another reason why studying Edwards can be very frustrating. Because you're, sometimes you read these intensely academic books where they remove Edwards from his pastoral context. I'm reading William Evans' uh, history of imputation and impartation in the Reformed tradition in America. And it's a great text, and I'm learning a lot from it, but he treats Edwards like he was a, uh, an architect of the Cathedral of the Mind. Yeah, and right. I don't think Edwards would own that. And, that well, and, and I think that tendency goes, I mean, we see it all the time in, in systematic theology, the reading of Augustine, the reading of Aquinas. They always are reading them by their contribution to intellectual history right, or some, right. and they do contribute to those things. But they were ministering. They were trying to exegete scripture. They were trying to serve the church and and its ministry. Well, I I think that, you know, when you do that, when you do it right, uh, the pastoral work, uh, you know, that that you're engaged in as a a thinker, it really gets you into everything. It's not as though, okay, okay, I'm just a pastor. I don't have to think about you know, metaphysics. That's right. Or I don't need to think about cosmology or something yeah. like that. No, 
you know, actually, if you take your, your, your work seriously and you really are thinking deeply about it, it takes you yeah. into all that stuff and more. Yeah, and they, and they didn't put, they didn't put uh, guardrails around what could be talked. I mean, Edwards is a, is a case in point. Yeah. It wasn't so, oh, okay, this is too heavy. Yes, yeah, right. I, I don't want to be. I don't want. I don't want to. I don't want to expect too much of my people. Well, when, in in my case with Calvin, if you read Calvin's sermons and then read his commentaries, or vice versa, you'll find essentially the same thing there. Yeah. Oh, yeah. yeah. Sure. You know, the the only exception was that Calvin never really wanted to preach on predestination, because he because he thought that that would generate too much heat, more heat than light. Yeah. yeah. Um, until he was forced into it. Uh-huh. And it, it became a really big public issue. He only kept, he kept that originally for his theological works. <laughs> Didn't show up in the sermons until Bolsek basically forced him into it. So. Isn't that interesting? Because if there's something that people associate with him now, it's that. Yeah, and it's a bit of a mistake. But. It is. And but, but an interesting thing you see here is also the way in which a pastor and theologian come into his, his ministerial yeah. focus. Um, here's someone who could sit down and write a tre- you know, an essay, a treatise on the freedom of the will or on the religious affections, um, which can engage the field of theology and its whole, the whole tradition of Christianity, also engage the whole world of academic reflection and philosophy, but also be serving the, the concerns and the issues that the church that he's you know, giving giving his service to now, our yeah. Now I want to I want to also add here, and I know that you can elaborate a lot on this, Christian. It wasn't as though everything he said and did and wrote about was appreciated by his congregations. Uh, no, <laughs> no, definitely not. Yeah, Edwards is, according to the Encyclopedia Britannica, the best mind America's ever produced. He oversaw one of the most remarkable outpourings of the Holy Spirit, yeah. and then his congregation fired him yep. in 1749. There you go. That's the way it tends uh, to work. Well, not only did they fire him, they also asked him to stay on for another year to keep preaching until they found someone better. Um, <laughs> you know, uh, yeah. some of the greatest minds in the, in the history of the world uh, don't go to our churches. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, well, to Edward's credit, he... Love the people of Northampton yeah, so much. Yeah. He stayed on before yeah. he went to Stockbridge, right, and, right, as a missionary. But yeah, it is. <laughs> and kind then of the Stockbridge thing. years were not anything to write home about. That they were, they were a challenge. Yeah, you know the the old way of looking at the Stockbridge years was it was some sort of bucolic retreat for Edwards, where he was finally able to turn his mind to these great treatises <laughs> of original sin and freedom of the will. But when you get down to his actual day to day life. That was pretty tough. Yeah, that was yeah. pretty tough. He, yeah, it's not the Stockbridge of today with Tanglewood and all that kind no, of. No, he, one of the, the the other prominent British family there, his cousins, the Williams family, hated him, <laughs> and did everything they could to get him fired and thrown out. And these are the people he has to interact with every day. Yeah, right. And right. Uh, that, well, that, we that know that been as easy. pastors. That oh yeah, that's just gonna happen. Yeah, yeah. Um, so you know, Edwards was not. Sometimes he's characterized as one of these antisocial guys that stays in his office 15 hours a day. And yeah, he was that guy. But he was also personable enough that people really liked him. Except uh, his family. Except, yeah, except his <laughs> except family. Except that family. Except the, the Williams clan. But there's a lot wrapped up in that that, honestly, I don't even know if I understand it all. Right, right. Um, but yeah, Stockbridge was not a bucolic retreat. So, so let's go to this sort of a, the, the sort of fo- focus of your work on uh, Edwards and warfare. Okay. But, you know, what did he have to say about it? Oh, yeah, I'd say a lot. Um, you know, my uh, my collection of sermons now is the foundation for a monograph I'm working on, Edwards at War, and I kind of divide Edwards sermons into a couple of different phases. So, the first phase of Edwards sermons on war. Uh, come between 1739 and 1744. And this was a period of warfare mainly among British European powers, either War of Jenkins Ear with Britain and Spain, which I didn't know how widespread that was till like, there's battles going on in Argentina, wow. uh, Spain, and mm. the West Indies all at the same time. Mm. I didn't know. No, I didn't know that either until about like three weeks ago. Uh, <laughs> the things um, we find out. <laughs> yeah. Then this war kind of gets absorbed into this broader conflict, the War of Austrian Succession, where now it's Britain and France, although it's much more complicated than that. Maria Theresa and Habsburg Empire and shifting of alliances and 
that's been very tough to untangle. But during that phase of European conflict, <laughs> Edwards is still making use of martial images because these are the reports that they're getting in the newspaper. And any time it was Britain versus Spain or France, which they would have understood as uh, the Protestant interest versus anti-Christ, Papist, pa Papist Catholicism, right? <laughs> right. right. Um, Tyrannical he, Catholicism. Yep. Right, right. Uh, Edwards drew on this imagery, but in order to support the other thing that's going on, the other thing that's going on at the same time are the second wave of revivals from 1740 to 1743. So Edwards would preach sermons like um, uh, a person seeking heaven like valiant and resolute soldiers that... Um, in the King James Version, I believe in Matthew, it says that one is to take the kingdom of heaven with violence. Right, right. Right? So Edward says that if you want to be awakened, if you want an experience with God, you have to pursue um, the, the, you have to pursue heaven like these soldiers we read about that are uh, laying siege to Prague in a valiant and resolute way. You have to be in it for the long haul. You have to not let your guard down. Think, so he's leveraging these martial themes towards revivalist ends. Now, there's a couple of things that come to my mind uh, as you describe this, Christian. One is, um, uh, it sounds as though he is a, he's addressing a congregation who knows about what's going on in the world. Oh, yeah. Um, I had to survey the Boston Gazette, and I read every issue from the Bo of the Boston Gazette from 1739 to 1755, uh, colonial grammar is not fun to read. Uh, it was painful at times. But I was surprised to find out there were articles in the Boston Gazette about Chinese uprisings in Indonesia in 1741 wow, or 40. Wow. Yeah, I'd... You know, but you see, see there's so many things that uh, kind of come together in this that I don't think we, is, we, we have an, a way of appreciating we're all present in the minds of people. So here we have people out on the frontier in New England. And that's a, that's a mind sort of blowing, you know, thought for a lot of our listeners. New England, the frontier, yes. Yeah. So you got that. And, the, you know, the, the potential of maybe dying in your bed because you've been, a, you know, you're, you're subject to a, an Indian raid or something. Yeah. Uh, so there's that. And then at the same time, these are people who are reading the newspaper and learning about things that are going on in Indonesia and in uh, Hungary and in other parts of the world, oh, in Austria yeah. and so forth. So this is fascinating. That, you yeah, know. well, it's much more co cosmopolitan than I think I realized yeah. before. Uh, and at well, the same time... You know, uh, just as, as an aside, just take it ahead a little bit, and you look at the Federalist Papers. Um, most undergraduates have a hard time wading their way through the Federalist Papers, but those were written for farmers in upstate New York. We've got to keep this simple for the farmer. Yeah, yeah. 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 Well, that's one thing Edwards never did, is he never really kept it simple never, for never people. Never dumbed it down. Yeah. Um, yeah. Which is one of the reasons he might have gotten fired at some point, because <laughs> it, it's not like everyone in New England was so much smarter than they were during, during the Federalist Papers days. Um, but do you think, do you, now, did he ever say anything, to, to your knowledge, about, you know, his faith in the ability of people to rise to the occasion, to think about things? Uh, or did he just assume it, or was he just so into his thinking that he just well, didn't he give didn't it any He didn't use thought? those terms. He referred to those things as spiritual duties. Okay. Right? Yeah. So that we have a duty to engage the world. So in 1740, just about the time George Whitfield came to America... Uh, Colonel William Blakely came to America and recruited 3,500 American <laughs> volunteers. And yes, they actually called them American then. Interesting. Uh, yeah, I thought that was interesting too. From 11 of the colonies to join with British regular forces in Jamaica in order to uh, lay siege to Cartagena. Huh. So there were people, I have not found any evidence of anyone from the Northampton congregation volunteering for this expedition. But from Colonel Blakeney's records, it's clear that he derived a substantial number of volunteers from New England. Interesting. So if it wasn't from Northampton directly, cousins, yeah. brothers-in-laws, people that were personally known to the congregation would have yeah. uh, went to Cartagena. That did not, that did not end well, yeah. Um, yeah. both for the British, especially not for the Americans. Of the 3,500 people enlisted, uh, we have reports that only three ever made it back to wow. the U.S. Wow. Um, mostly because the British 
were consumed by disease and they impressed Americans into service. So Edwards preaches the sermon, uh, the Curse of Moraz, about a, uh, the victory of Barack um, and Deborah and how those who did not join in the work of the Lord were sinning. Um, but he actually uses the term impress, like that you should be willing to volunteer. You, you should not have to be impressed. Now, let's, let's stop here a second, because yeah. I know what some of our listeners are thinking when they hear the word impress. Im- yes, impressment. <laughs> That's right. Yes. What, what, what they think of is, oh, wow, I'm so impressed. Yes. When, in yes. fact, what we're talking about here is forced service in some kind of military or yeah. naval service. I, I think your listeners are smarter than that, Chris. I hope so. I hope so. I, just, I, just, I don't want to assume, assume anything. No, no, I appreciate it. We don't Actually, want our congregation I, to fire us. <laughs> I, I, want, I, I want you to think about this. Now, the British Army impressed a lot of people, even in Britain. As a matter of fact, if you look at a traditional British beer mug, the bottom of it is glass. Hmm. It's clear. And the reason is that one of the ways you would get people into the military is a recruiter would buy somebody a beer and they would drink it, and at the bottom of it would be a shilling coin. Oh. And by accepting the beer, they accepted the king's shilling, oh, no. and therefore they were enlisted. <laughs> so they started making beer mugs with glass on the bottom so that people could check to see if there was a coin in it. <laughs> let, me, let me take a look at my glass. Uh, I need to check no, nothing there. there. So, I mean, but, but, I, but I, I want you to consider the notion of forcing somebody into yeah. the military yeah. and then giving them a gun with a long bayonet on the end of it. <laughs> Yeah, no, it posed a lot of problems for colonists because now you're part of a British military structure, yeah. British discipline, British uh, chain of command. And you know what? A lot of the Americans that volunteered quite literally said, we did not volunteer for this. We are Americans. We volunteered for to serve under Colonel Gooch. We didn't volunteer to serve under the, this British guy. But, you know, once you're in Jamaica eating the... Britain's food and all that. You, you, I mean, sure, sure. Which is torture enough. So. Yes. <laughs> Jamaican food's another thing. Yeah, 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 it, yeah. It's interesting if you go to the Seven Years War, French Indian War over here, um, they really put a bounty on getting New Englanders to enlist as, as auxiliaries. And if you read their diaries, you know, they are so mad at the Redcoats when they come back from the war. You know, they're, they're like, yeah, these guys think they're so tough. I'd like to, you know, just, I'd like to go toe-to-toe with them just to show them. So, and wh- these are the guys who in 1776 are the leaders in the community yeah. in Boston. Well, that's, that's, that's what I was going to get at. You know, there, yeah. there are the, the, the seeds have been planted by the Brits uh, for, that, uh, you know, sort of produce the fruit of their own demise later mm. in, in different ways. I remember listening to a, a BBC, BBC4 uh, <laughs> sort of... Uh, you know, sort of a kind of a review or, or a conversation concerning Benjamin Franklin. Mm-hmm. And, and the thing that these guys in, in, in the UK were commiserating over is how did we manage to alienate Ben Franklin, one of the greatest minds of that age, so that he was so upset with us <laughs> because he had lived in London, he had lived in the UK or, or you know, in England, and uh, that experience for him was... was uh, it was humiliating. It was it it, it it angered him, you know, and he he spent the rest of his life with a chip on his shoulder, with, with her, because of that, and so they kind of got what they had coming to them. Anyway, I'm, I'm taking yeah. us off. No, off not really. Today. Because a, a quick note on Franklin, <laughs> just uh, one of my favorite quotes from Ben Franklin. Um, somebody at the Continental Congress apparently referred to them as Englishmen, and Franklin objected, and he said. Um, you know, you, you can, basically what it came down to is he said, saying, you know, we, we don't have the rights of an Englishman. Ah. And saying that calling me an Englishman is rather like calling an ox a bull. Hmm. I'm uh. sure he appreciates the honor, but he would much rather have restored what was rightfully his. <laughs> That's so like him. <laughs> well, Edwards and Franklin were born within months of each other. Oh, really? Yeah. I didn't and know they that. were almost identical contemporaries. Obviously, Edwards passed away in 1758, you know, a little earlier than people expected. But Franklin is always seen as Edwards' evil twin brother. Yeah, right, uh, right. That he kind of had the same cosmopolitan education. Um, but yet just went very different directions with it. Well, you know, that might be a surprise to some folks because I think many people in sort of 
you know, Saturday, you know, review, you know, uh, kind of uh, evangelicalism have a kind of poor Richard Almanac view yeah. of Franklin. They don't know the Franklin who li- went to France. <laughs> yeah. They don't. They don't know that sort of that cagey and very uh, cunning Franklin. Yeah. You know. Anyway. But yeah, no. Edwards. One of the pastimes of all Edwards scholars is to ask the question: Had Edwards lived, would he have supported the American Revolution yeah. or not? Um, what do you think? I, I'm going to give you the typical qualified <laughs> academic answer. Uh, my doctoral advisor, Mark Valeri, argued in his book on Joseph Bellamy that uh, Edwards probably would have supported it. I think there's significant evidence to the contrary. Edwards was one of the champions of what's called the court party. So in, before we had Democrats and, and Republicans, we had court and country party. Country party thought that power rested in the people. Court party thought that power rested in the social elites. And Edwards kind of made his career resting on the court party. Interesting. However, when his uncle died, when his uncle, Colonel John Stoddard, son of Solomon Stoddard, died right, right. in 1748, that's when Edwards gets fired. He no longer has his benefactor. Edwards, over the next two years, is kind of burned a couple of times by the death of court party benefactors. And then when he gets to Stockbridge, he writes The Nature of True Virtue. Uh, so Jerry McDermott has argued fairly uh, passionately hmm. that based on what Edwards wrote in The Nature of True Virtue, Edwards is setting himself up to be a patriot, to, to be hmm. a, a revolutionary. Hmm. Um, and I think Jerry's probably right about that, but I don't think that re- reflects Edwards' whole history. And Edwards was so remarkably consistent in his beliefs, it's really hard to talk about an evolution of Edwards' thought. That's really one of the few areas... You can talk about Edwards evolving or changing in, yeah. in his thought. So like an academic, I'll say yes and no. Uh, <laughs> well, we are talking about sort of like uh, non-factual things. We're just yeah. speculating. Oh, yeah. but, but having said that, the, whether Edwards himself would have or not, the, it, it, something that's often overlooked is the impact of the Great Awakening mm. on the American Revolution. Yeah, mm-hmm. right. Um, it, it sets the groundwork in all kinds of different ways for um, an anti-monarchial stand. Um, Among other things, for example, when you get when you get treatises that say things like, you know, the dangers of an unconverted ministry. Yes, right. The average person in a pew who's had a true born-again experience or whatever they called it in the period is spiritually the superior of a fully educated and ordained pastor who hasn't had that experience. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. What this whole thing does is it breaks down the entire concept of social hierarchy. And it it, it has a leveling effect that creates an environment where the kind of revolutionary ideas we get come out. Yeah, Yeah. I think the difference with Edwards is, well, yeah, after Edwards supports the, um, and actually lays the framework for the Great Awakening, you do have disenfranchised people literally put in the pulpit slaves and women and lay exhorters that really did challenge the social hierarchy. Edwards thought that was okay because these social elites could still kind of keep control, right? You can let all these people preach because at some point daddy's going to come and say, okay, time out, stop it. Uh, So I don't know if Edwards knew that he was laying that foundation. Right, and and that's a different question, but the Great Awakening did, oh, I absolutely. Think, have, a, have a massive yeah. effect well, on and that. And even linguistically, you have these terms, the, the, these rhetorical terms Edwards used very freely, about liberty and freedom. And Edwards used it in a theological context. Yeah, but correct. these same words were somehow morphed into a political context over the next 30 years. So that Edwards really does look like the fountain of all this. Um, but a little bit more complicated than that. Right, right. So anyway, so we've got this, uh, this sort of social milieu in which, you know, we've got wars kind of, uh, you know, sort of developing on an, on a sort of serial basis, you know, mm-hmm. one following another. Uh, Edwards preaches. So what is, uh, what is he saying to folks? What is, how okay. is he exhorting them? Uh, well, I'll move into the second phase of warfare Edward deal with. So from 1739 to 1743-44, these wars were in the Caribbean. They were in Europe, Battle of Dettingen, you know, the British beat the French almost by accident. Edwards preaches a Thanksgiving sermon about that, but it's still <laughs> war a world away. In 1744, war then comes to the colonies, because anytime Britain and France go to war, it's not long before New England and New France right. go to war. Sure. 
So King George's War starts in... So New France, just so folks know, we're talking about Quebec and yep, places it, north. It, mm-hmm. Montreal, uh, yeah. Cape Breton. Yep. And, uh, and New England has heard the story before. In King William's War, Queen Anne's War, over and over again, wars that start in Europe don't end in Europe, right? Mm-hmm. They, they are transplanted to the U.S., so everyone kind of braces themselves. And Governor Shirley gets an idea. He said, okay, there were two prisoners, two, two Bostonians that were held captive at the Fortress Louisburg at Cape Breton. They just came back and they told me that uh, it's not very well supplied, it's not very well maintained, it's not very well manned. You know what, if we get an expedition together, we might be able to knock the French out of Fortress Louisburg. Can I get an and, order of uh, Cajun fries? And ahead, that's fine. And at first, very they, uh, appropriate, by the way. <laughs> <laughs> that's right. All those displaced Frenchmen who went down to Louisiana. <laughs> well, well, that's the third phase of Edward's work. But uh, Newland sees an opportunity to maybe knock the French, knock the, the, the uh, France's biggest fortress out of out of the New World, right? So they get together this expedition. They sail up there, and after they sail, Edwards preaches a sermon, April fourth, seventeen forty-five. Um, called The Duties of a Christian in Times of War. And in this sermon, Edwards is now no longer using the idea of war as a background towards revivalist purposes. What Edwards does in the sermon is he articulates a just war theory. And, you know, at this time, there were no West Points, there were no Sandhurses, Mm -hmm. there was no von Clausewitz or Sun Tzu, that the... Martial theory were developed and presented by pastors from the pulpits. Stop, stop. This is great. This is it great. Is. <laughs> it is. I, got, I have a point after yours. Yeah, no, no, go, go for it. Go for it. Well, one of the things, I mean, I'm, I'm coming at it from a different angle, but what you have also is someone mindful of that, but also he is somebody who's a rare breed theologically because he's wedding traditions together, which prior to and after have not stayed wedded together. No. Obedience theory, if you will, command, divine command theory with natural law theory, virtue ethics, which is a rarity, and the just war traditions, which, which too, he does more in line with classical Christian tradition than these kind of disruptive um, biblicisms that you get much later. He, he's, a, he's a rare breed yeah, yeah. in the way he goes about doing this. Oh, yeah. His is philosophically robust. I hate the word, but it's yeah, true. Yeah. Um, theologically rich, but as someone who can take the whole theological tradition, the whole of, of what you would call sort of Catholic or Christian intellectual history, and bring it to a culminating point, and yet still be distinct to the person and his time, and a modern in many ways. He, he, he's, he's kind of crystallized so many different, and then, then tied to the Enlightenment. I mean, you're dealing with somebody who is just a, a rare, a rare gem. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, one of the great things about Edwards is he is imbibing this Enlightenment thought, mostly British, but some continental, yeah. and he's leveraging Enlightenment thought to defend traditional Reformed theology. Mm-hmm. Which, mm-hmm. his traditional Reformed differs radically than what today most people think oh, of. Oh, yeah, right. 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 Yeah, I was hoping not to talk about yeah. that. Okay. <laughs> well, I had to get well, it out we, there because I've been, I've been defending it. Yeah. No, that's fine. That's fine. <laughs> yeah, we may want to get there. But seeing as you're coming from the CMA, yeah. that's right, so you're not even a, you're not even like a, a, like a card-carrying reform guy. Uh, we were found by a Presbyterian pastor. That's true. So that's true. An apostate <laughs> Presbyterian pastor. Uh, I, I, I would argue otherwise. But I, I consider myself part of the Reformed tradition theological if not in my polity. Okay, so. well, I'm, I'm glad to know it, but, I'm, but just still, <laughs> most people, when they think about the Christian Missionary Alliance, they're not thinking that. No. You know, they're thinking something more in tune with, say, maybe, you know, the American Holiness Movement, the Camp Meeting Movement, that kind of stuff. Yeah. Um, Amy Simple McPherson was is not a part of the Christian Missionary Alliance. That's like a huge misunderstanding. The fourfold gospel of A.B. Simpson and the four-square gospel not the same thing. Different so, things yeah. altogether. Yeah, <laughs> they sound alike. I was, I was so glad I never let them in my library. <laughs> so, but but let, let's let's kind of play this out. So you know you you know most most guys today would either just kind of jump into a uh, kind of uh, I guess martialist sort of pro-America frame of mind. You know, our team, let's go, yah rah rah. 
Or they would kind of play the two, you know, sort of kingdoms card and say, I'm not going to talk about that at all. You know, kingdom of God and, and you know, sort of what's yeah. going on in the world don't have any relationship to each other. Let's just keep these things completely separate. But here we have with Edwards something different than either of those two things. Yeah. yeah. By the way, just as a quick note, modern two kingdom theory is different from Luther's two kingdom theory yeah. very significantly on just that point. Yeah. Yep. 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 Let, me, let me just put the marker in for that. Yeah. yeah. Uh, Edwards really comes at this as bizarre collection of sources, right? So Edwards starts this sermon in a philosophical mode, hmm. trying to philosophically justify war. And he, he kind of dug himself into a hole with his previous sermon on war back in 1744, saying that Britain only engages in defensive wars, right? Now we have New England, <laughs> Britain, in their minds, kind of organizing a preemptive strike against Louisburg. So Edwards had to give something of an account for that. Um, so he draws on the, lango the language of Hugo Grotius. Huh. And he says that wars... Who, by the way, is a remonstrant in Armenian. Yep. Yeah. Um, wars um, need to be waged with vigor. Like that is proper use in bellum conduct. Hmm. That if you don't prosecute it with vigor, then you prolong it you prolong death and suffering. So Edwards uses this term vigor, which had this very enlightenment. That's a fascinating thing to think about a little bit. The fact that if you don't sort of put your all into the, into the, to the fight, you're actually doing violence mm -hmm. to people. Oh, and, yeah. And that, that goes back to, especially in just war thinking and, and even in orthodox, this notion, the virtues of war. So it's interesting to see how you mentioned that tied to enlightenment notion. But that would have been one of those things, as a virtue ethicist, he would have been kind of attracted to. Oh, yeah. The, 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 you know, the way in which this, is, this needs to be exercised, the form it needs to take, and the character that that form needs to take, and the ends that it needs to be taken towards. Yeah. And this is something rare, again, in what you often see, well, today it's rare. It, what, maybe, maybe it wasn't around, I don't know all of this stuff going on then, but the fact that he's looking at it that way and in that, from that angle, from a lot of Reformation and evangelical thinking, yeah. he's, a, again, another rare figure. Rare. And, yeah. you know, it's funny because I got to present on this sermon at Queens College, Oxford, as a historian to a group of religious studies people, yeah, and, you were telling me yeah. about this. Yeah. And, that can be scary at Oxford. I, <laughs> well, I, I, yeah, I, I, because I wanted to talk about Edwards. <laughs> no one else wanted to talk about Edwards. The first and really only question I got was, well, what do you think about that? Would Edwards have supported dropping the atomic bomb? <laughs> yeah, I asked my question earlier that was like, you know, sort of non-factual, you know, so... Yeah, um, I don't know. Uh, so, just to... That's not acceptable. Well... On, on, on whom is the appropriate answer? <laughs> that's, that's, that's great. Uh, I, I think my response was just to annoy people. Yeah. I said, Absolutely he would have. And, and they just stared at me with open jaws like, people admit this out loud. Um... So, yeah. Well, I, it's a better answer than Augustine gave at one point when someone asked him, you know, one of these pagans who thought the idea that creation actually happened and that the universe wasn't eternal was just ridiculous. <laughs> yeah. And he asked Augustine at one point, uh, well, so what was God doing for all the centuries, the eons before he actually created the universe? And Augustine replied, <laughs> creating hell for the curious. <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> No, yeah, that's, you know what? You can pull that one out next time. I, I should have. <laughs> and and you're, you're fortunate you didn't get the guy who used to show up at, uh, often to the seminars. He would say, you just don't really know what you're talking about now, do you? <laughs> yeah. Well, I mean, he wouldn't have been wrong, I guess. But, um, so, yeah, I mean, Edward's idea of vigor and all that, yeah, it does have modern implications. But I, I, I think... And I did explain this in my response. The thing that makes it different is the technology is so different. I don't, I don't yeah, know what yeah. a, well, Edwards would made of the technology. Yeah, there were a lot of uh, traditional, uh, you know, sort of, you know, generals and, and uh, officers who were appalled at, at what happened with the atomic bomb. You know, they were just like, this is just so, this is taking, this is, this is outside of the realm of, you know, what we can, we can. Yeah, we so, don't have a evaluative criteria for that kind of thing. Um, I'll wait well, the, the, yeah. technolo the yeah. technological realities yeah. always outpace the philosophical sure. consensus. 
Yeah. Uh, and that was true in Edward's day as well. Edward's uncle, John Stoddard, proposed a very, at the time, shocking measure uh, during, the, during Queen Anne's War. It was actually a repetition of what Solomon Stoddard requested of the General Assembly during King Philip's War was the use of dogs, and I quote, to terrorize the Indians. Hmm. Right, that uh, they needed some psychological deterrent because, I mean, whether or not they were right in feeling this way, but they felt terrorized by these people that just that didn't wear uniforms, popped out of bushes, not really the warfare Europeans are used to. That's right. That they yeah. needed to meet them on equal footing. Right. Uh, so dogs would have been kind of the technological advance of the 1730s, 1740s. Oh. Um, and they have a very short history, at least in that conflict. Did Edwards have a dog? Just curious. Yeah. I don't, I actually, I don't know. Yeah, I don't curious know. question. I, well, and there's people I know that would know, but that person's on me. Um, so Edwards makes this very weird turn in the sermon. So he starts talking about Enlightenment philosophy, Hugo Grotius, uh, and then he starts talking about the Bible, and specifically the Sixth Commandment. He said that we, we must go to war in order to fulfill the Sixth Commandment not to murder. Wow. In interest. Wow. Keep going, sorry. Yeah, well, I yeah. mean, I'll just kind of well, let I, that I, hang I, there. I know how that works, but I, I think maybe you should spell it out a little bit. How, well, how does he justify because that? Because the conflict with these Abenaki Indians and with these French and Indian sorties during times of undeclared war just seemed endless. Yes. And somebody's cow disappears, <laughs> and they think, well... This river tribe must have, you know, connected with a French group and stole it. So they go and take two people prisoner and execute them for stealing a cow, even though there's really no evidence of that. Right. Look, when you fight wars, you settle the issue, you put an end to all that stuff. Right, right. Uh, so in order to fulfill the Sixth Commandment, you have to go to war, which is kind of an odd... Uh, well, from a modern perspective, yes, because we live in a world that's... General, where it's generally assumed that the authorities have got things under control and we won't necessarily yeah. need to do anything ourselves in order to bring a yeah, resolution I, to that. I think it's kind of odd even for then. Like I'm in okay. the middle of a fellowship with um, the Society for Colonial Wars, the Massachusetts Historical Society, looking at people beyond Edwards. What were other people preaching about during this time? Yeah. Does it sound like Edwards? or is that From what I can tell, Edwards is... Somewhat different on this count. Interesting. But, it's, uh, yeah, it's, it's interesting. I remember where I first heard that everybody here remembers the old John Gerstner, who uh, spent enough time reflecting on him, uh, Sproul's mentor. But he did a lecture on Edwards on that particular command, and he en ends up moving it into a justification for uh, Dietrich Bonhoeffer in his activity of killing Hitler. Oh, wow. Yeah. And he, he sees that as, as the, he, he sees a parallel in ethical reflection. Of course, Bonhoeffer's in a different context, a different sure. setting. But still, the same, same kind of biblical reasoning on the command uh, compelled Bonhoeffer to do exactly how Edwards saw that text. First time I ever saw those things put together like that, but he saw, he saw that as a command to, that's what I was talking about, this, this kind of interesting way in which... Uh, virtue and command come together in these figures, yeah. and, and they come out at an angle where after you see their biblical reasoning, it makes sense, but up front you wouldn't have, have, have first... And, and speaking of virtue, yeah. the fact that this person who you know is virtuous, who is reasoning this out... Yeah. Yeah, I, I, com, com, yeah it comes to that. And, and so, it, but it's interesting twist of, of thinking there, um, but, but I yeah. mean, that's, that's what you say, you know, I think in a Gerstner's case, he he was, I think, profounded by, he thought Edwards was his, uh, you know, uh, you know he, he saw Edwards as sort of the second best exegetical theologian, probably comparable to Augustine. Yeah. yeah. Um, and, and in terms of his, his, his genuine thinking through the implications of a biblical text, and, yeah. and he did that with that. But Well, it's kind of a hangover from yeah. um, Edwards' engagement with guys like um, Shaftesbury and Hutchinson, this yeah. effective... Mm -hmm. uh, perception uh, where, you know, these theological truths change who we are yeah. on the inside and should be evidenced by what we do on the outside. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, that's, that's right. Well, in, in, interesting, I mean, they're moderns. Um, Edwards is right at the height of that, and he wasn't someone so intimidated. I mean, you, you have the, he's, he's engaging Immanuel Kant. I mean, you know, one of the first theologians, I think, to actually substantively do it without, and uh, really engage it, rather than redefine his paradigm in light of it. 
Yeah. Um, I mean, you, you, you see what happens in Germany with theologians is they basically cave to Kant's thinking. Edwards is now. I mean, he pushes back. He, he pushes back and he forces Kant to almost justify himself within the, the biblical Christian heritage. Yeah, that yeah. would have been a conversation that would be fun to hear. Yeah. I think Peter Kreft has to write another book like <laughs> yeah, uh, yeah, Edwards yeah. and Kant in the <laughs> waiting room to heaven or something. <laughs> or um, maybe in the waiting room when it, Kant is going to hell. <laughs> well, <laughs> in the waiting room. Uh, <laughs> so, uh, uh, so just a quick aside. The notion that somebody stole my cow, I've got to go grab a couple of people from the nearest tribe and execute them for killing it or, or, or for it. Um, that is actually goes back to an old medieval you know, notion that you take revenge on wrongs done to you that was technically known as self-help. <laughs> so I believe in self-help. Every, every, every time I go into a bookstore and see a self-help section, I'm expecting to find things like the anarchist's cookbook. That's right. How to steal your neighbor's cow or yeah. how, how to execute your neighbor yeah. for stealing your cow. A guide to greater outlawry, as uh, the Vikings would have said. So, so, so here's an interesting question. I mean, here, here's someone, of course, who's you know thinking through these things as a pastor, as a theologian, as one philosophically astute, um, culturally in the know, um, and yet he he also you know has a kind of missionary heart. I mean, here's someone who will go minister to to the natives. Yeah. Um, and and so he he he's able to carry within the, you know the within his person um, something about the mission of the church that allows all those things to be held together in a way that okay if I'm just a partisan for for politics or yeah. my well. particular ideological viewpoint and my particular epistemology. I mean, that's how we tend to be today. Okay, this person, do, you know, doesn't fit in my tribe, so therefore... Yeah. I, he, I'm sorry. Uh, like, you can unfold it, so... But it's hard to unfold this without accidentally getting yeah. tangled in modern discussions. Sure. Because sure. in one sense, I can make the argument that Edwards was one of the first globalists out there. Mm. Yeah. And he made one unfortunate statement that seems to suggest otherwise, and people latch on to that statement, that af after, I believe it was the um, first wave of the Great Awakening, 1734, 1735, Edwards was really excited because he, he thought that maybe the, the millennium could be dawning right here in New England, yeah. right? Yeah. He later went on to say, well, no, I didn't mean to say that this is the beginning of the millennium. It was wrong for me to have said that, um, but I think that there is a certain Peter Marshall Jr., David Barton, uh, you know, attachment to that statement as some sort of providential Christian interpretation of what Edwards said there. When Edwards was was much more of a global citizen than maybe we've had since. Not just because, like after Whitfield came to preach in 1740, yeah. Edwards preached in a private meeting, God's grace carried on in other places, where he would um, kind of present all of the news from around the globe as to what God was doing in other parts of the world. Edwards was a, a very, uh, to use your favorite term, robust correspondent with um, Josiah Willard, who was the secretary of Massachusetts that was in touch with heads of state around the world, Scottish divines, um, because Edwards wanted to know, okay, this is what I see God doing here. But because I know God is in the entire world, God must be working other well, ways. Well, in, in, in global, you know, again, I think sometimes we have to do a little therapy because today global tends to be ideologically understood rather than missiologically yeah. understood. And I think that, that's one of the things I'm keeping here is he can hold these things together, which would oftentimes seem to be frictions. Yeah. Uh, um, it wasn't as though he had sold his local community into kind of slavery, so to speak, because all the jobs have been sent overseas. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> that's, that's not a, what we're talking about no, when we talk about globalism. Right. No. That's right. No, I, I think... Yeah. He just cared about the whole. Uh, let me tell a very different story that illustrates this point. Um, Edwards has come under fire, even recently, for uh, his slave ownership. Right. Right. Now, some people pass off as, well, that was kind of the 
culture of the times, how much do you hold them accountable for it? Edwards is a very complex figure because Edwards spends, for most accounts, up to 15 hours a day in a study, studying. Well, why could he spend 15 hours a day in a study? Well, he had three slaves that were doing all the work he should have been doing out in the, on the field, right? Yeah. So Edwards kind of made his career, in one extent, to, 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 to a certain extent, on the backs of slaves. But when Edwards was in his study, the theology he developed became the heart and the foundation for, for abolitionism, led directly to the Civil War. So some of the famous Edwardsians are guys like Lyman Beecher, whose daughter Harriet Beecher Stowe sure, sure. played this big part, Samuel Hopkins and Newport and right. um, William Lloyd Garrison and all that. So, okay, now Edwards becomes pretty complicated. Now, because on the one hand, he did own slaves. On the other hand, he developed an ideology that lets, you know, let slaves go free. But we can't really like dismiss Edwards for owning slaves because at the time, you know, Mark Knoll's book on uh, the Civil War's theological crisis is a great kind of summary of this. The arguments before the Civil War isn't whether or not slavery is correct. It's are black people human beings? Yeah. That was the discussion. And you know what? Edwards definitely said, yes, they are. They are human beings. They can be saved. They can preach. Uh, and so are the Native Americans. Well, that, and, that was my point. Yep. The point with that is here's somebody at a time where he wasn't becoming tribally protective. He was expanding the riches of what he had to a wider, oh, a, yeah. a wider, a wider vision. It was, it was devoting a lot of time yep. to it. his son-in-law, I guess. It was it completely, was, it, was that right? Was, was it, it his, Aaron Burr or? Uh, one of them. One of, which one oh, he had 11 kids. Which so. one was it? Which one? <laughs> Was the missionary to the natives? Um, oh well, that wasn't. It, it, it was it related was, to him, or I don't no, know, no, David Brainerd. Brainerd. Okay, David Brainerd. Yes, no, I mean, yeah. there's a theory that yeah. Brainerd and his daughter Jerusha were engaged. Yeah, while okay, Brainerd, yeah. But, well, it's been a long time since I've read. No, it, that's, fine. Yeah, yeah, so. that's fine. Yeah, that's fine. Yeah, but no, <laughs> but I mean, I the point is, to, yeah. Edwards. Uh, yeah. <laughs> excuse me, Edwards um, had a very high view of other races, of, of other ethnicities. So Edwards thought that, hey, these. Chinese people in Erie and Jaya that are, are revolting, well, God has a plan for them too, you know. Could I have some more ketchup? Uh, so it really is a, I mean, this is not why Perry Miller called Edwards the first modern, but he, he may have been on this, on this case. Yeah. So kind of getting back, to, we should kind of wrap this up or getting to the point where we need to wrap it up. So uh, if you were to kind of Give us a, uh, you know, a, an elevator speech on what we should think about uh, Edwards uh, in regard to just war. Uh, how would you fra frame it? I know I'm putting you on the spot. As far as just war specifically or warfare in general? Well, why don't you just take it where you want to go? Okay. Uh, I would say that Edwards, through his wartime sermons, proves himself to be a pastor par excellence of understanding the fears of his congregation understanding that a lot of these people in his congregation will actually go and fight these wars. And he gives them a theological framework within which to understand their duties, right? How can you be a Christian, a recipient of the outpouring of the Holy Spirit, and then march off and kill people? Um, well, because you are doing this in, serv in service of this greater cosmic goal, this triumph of the Protestant interest, of the, the coming of the kingdom of God. So it is, I, I'm afraid that Edward's pastoral prowess gets lost in the philosophy and the theology, all of which are excellent. But I, I like to take my work and point towards Edward's pastor. Okay, great. Anything you guys want to say as we wrap up? Interesting historical incident again from my church. When word from... Lexington, after Lexington and Concord made it to Wethersfield, they rang the church bell to assemble the people in the meeting house, and they came together. The pastor walked up into the pulpit that is actually still there in the church. Yeah, I've been there. Preached a sermon, and then led the militia to Boston to fight. Mm -hmm. And that seems to be, on some level, I'm not sure whether Edwards would have approved of it, but it seems to be on some level kind of the fruit of some of what he was doing. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Uh, George Whitfield is buried in Newburyport, 
and before the Newburyport militia marched off, they opened Whitfield's grave, took his clerical collar out, cut it into sections so that Whitfield would go into battle with them. Wow, this is like a, like a saint's uh, relics. Well, yeah. well, 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 well Whitfield, kind of Whitfield is like that. I mean, in the whole church, they have him buried under the pulpit, and people have come in and taken his bones, remember? And they ended up finding him in England, some of them, and they ended up, like, funding him to get back. And now I think maybe they're in Prince. I don't remember, but there's a strange history. That's right. But that yeah, well, Whitfield has become the kind of... Uh, Saint what Francis, classi- uh, yeah, what cl- yeah, yeah, yeah. What, what Orthodoxy and Catholicism have in terms of their relics, uh, the 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 uh, in, um, the, the awakened the awakened evangelical in the U.S. have with Whitfield. Saint Whitfield. Anyway, this has been a great conversation. Thanks for coming along, Christian. My it's pleasure. been yeah. great to talk to you about the subject, and we'll have to have you back sometime. But thank you for listening to the Theology Podcast. We appreciate your interest in the show. We appreciate all the folks who tune in every, every time uh, a new episode comes out. And uh, we also are, are grateful for all the folks who give to us. We have folks who give to us on a monthly basis, and uh, all those gifts go into helping make the show possible, funding the sort of the, just the ongoing expenses that help us to get the show out each week. So thank you one and all for all your help. And uh, for now, that's it. Bye-bye. Bye now. Bye. Thank you.